Hello and welcome. I'm Kasia Kuzmich-Kowalska. I'm the host of this podcast and it's time for another episode of Science on Trial and Error. It was supposed to run a week ago, but my PhD experiments have gotten in the way. I want to start by saying thank you for all your support and all your comments. I'm moved with your reactions and with growing number of listeners. I had hoped that the stories of my guests will be of help to other scientists out there and to hear that they resonate with you is just so rewarding. If you want to get more sneak peeks behind the scenes of how I work on the podcast episodes and also occasionally on my work and life, find the Science on Trial and Error Instagram account. And now let's get to this week's episode. My guest is Nicole Amberg. She is a neuroscientist and currently a postdoc in the group of Simon Hippenmeyer at IST Austria. She is investigating the role of epigenetics in the lineage progression of the developing cortical neurons. Nicole comes from Germany, but she's lived in Vienna since the beginning of her studies. She graduated in both zoology and molecular biology at University of Vienna, and she continued with her PhD studies at the Medical University under the supervision of Professor Maria Sibilia. Her work there was focused on the role of inflammation on stem cells of the skin. But besides her scientific resume, Nikki doesn't cease to take on new challenges. She's engaging in mentoring and public outreach activities, as well as acting in different organizational committees. She's also co-developing the STEM Fatale Initiative, an international platform aiming to support women's careers in STEM, and she's a founder of an educational outreach project called Wissenschafts. It is a great inspiration to hear from a strong female scientist who is not satisfied with the status quo and who is always striving to improve the state of things and to give back to the community. I'm extremely happy that I had a chance to talk to Nicole and I can now share her story with you. Please enjoy Nicole Amberg. Hi Nicole, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today and thank you for accepting the invitation. Hi Kasia, it's a, it's a great pleasure and quite some honor to be interviewed by you. Thank you. Oh, it's honor is mine, I'm sure of that. <laughs> so um, how are you doing? How's everything going? I think I'm good. Uh, I, I can go to the lab whenever I want. I can stay in home office whenever I want. So I'm I'm quite flexible at the moment. That helps a lot. I think it's quite a luxury situation for me. So you got your vaccination? Yes, I got my shot one week ago. I'm very happy about it and I'm really looking forward to the second shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I'm very glad that things are moving faster now and and hopefully soon we will really get most of the population vaccinated. Okay, so let's get first into your more recent work. Um, I know you are a postdoc in, in the lab of Simon Hippenmeyer at IST Austria. And I would be very curious to hear what you are working on over there. What's your project about? Uh, so maybe you can give us a brief overview. Sure. Um, so I'm working on neural development, um, more particularly on the development of the cerebral cortex. 
And we like to understand how that development works uh, because there are stem cells that need to undergo several rounds of proliferation. They need to generate distinct subtypes of, uh, of different identities of neurons. So I think that's a very fascinating process. Like why is a stem, stem cell not only producing one, one particular type of differentiated cell? And yeah, so that's what we are most interested in the lab. And I'm trying to understand the role of epigenetics in this process, mm -hmm. because, you know, you have a stem cell that's kind of progressing over time in the lineage, producing different subtypes of neurons. So it's, it's kind of an attractive model that you have epigenetics to regulate the, the gene expression in those cells. And then we were asking a quiet Peculiar question, I think. Um, you know, I mean, you have cells in a tissue and those cells are not just isolated entities within that tissue, right? They are connected with each other. And since epigenetics happen in the nucleus, people always assume that it's something cell intrinsic, mm -hmm. that it's like a cell autonomous function. And we were now actually challenging this kind of common belief and and we tested if we if we mutate a distinct epigenetic regulator in just one stem cell that's surrounded by a lot of normal cells mm -hmm. um, we were extremely surprised to see that it does not harm the stem cell at all and the stem cell behaves totally normal but when you remove that epigenetic mechanism from all of the stem cells then they go crazy then they produce too little amount of neurons and then they really have a problem. And then I think this is super exciting. It's it's like a new concept or let's say, I mean, maybe that's a big, a big word, but uh, yeah, I think it's a challenging finding. No? The niche in which the cell is, like that their surroundings, the environment can actually help her recover. That could be one answer to it, I think. Yeah, I mean, either the thing is just not required at all, and if you just remove it from the whole tissue, it's like a like a synthetic systemic effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, or alternate, and and that just doesn't happen if you just have one mutant, or the the normal environment can rescue the poor little mutant and you know guide along the whole way. You basically work on, on the brain development and you work on how the cells differentiate and generate so many cell types. But before, your work wasn't really so brain-related. Exactly. I think I didn't touch a single brain in, in my previous career. <laughs> so why have, you, why have you switched? And before you worked also on stem cells, right? Yeah, that didn't change. Uh, the overall big topic didn't change so much. Yeah, I worked uh, mostly on stem cells in the skin, mm -hmm. uh, the epidermis and the hair follicles. I also touched stem cells in the intestine a bit. I was also, I mean, I was working in a lab that was pretty much interested in the interaction of cancer cells and immune cells. Mm -hmm. So then it's, uh, it's just a tiny step to also have a look at hematopoietic stem cells, for example. So, um, yeah, in that lab, I think I touched almost every organ, but just never the brain. And uh, I think I just wanted to have something completely new, something to, to challenge me during my postdoc, uh, understand a completely new organ system. Um, yeah, and, and I think the, in that sense, the, the development of the neocortex is actually a really cool model because you have that one type of stem cell and that generates 
distinct types of neurons. Yeah, I found that really, really cool. That's why I dived into something completely new. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. There's so many open questions still in the field of brain research. And I guess you could transfer some of your skills from, from the previous work into this work. But what has been the most challenging when switching fields so much? I think it was kind of challenging to be accepted as a knowledgeable scientist uh, because, you know, all of the big names in, in neuroscience research, they meant nothing to me. And of course, I think everybody surrounding me felt like I was completely ignorant. Uh, but whereas all of the other big names that I connected with immunology and skin research and all of that, now nobody in neuroscience really knows these people, right? <laughs> so... Um, I don't know. I found it. That was, I think, a bit the hardest thing for me. But I think it's just great to dive into something new. I mean, every time you get challenged, it's, it, yeah, I think it stimulates your brain. <laughs> Coming back to the brain. <laughs> yeah, but you also come with, like, you know, a bit different perspective, which is always very helpful in research. You were bringing something else like a new point of view or some some new questions that that people just don't see because they are so much in their own narrow narrow discipline how long are you in into your postdoc now i'm now in my fifth year okay and how long did it take you to actually catch up because i think a lot of people are worried about this when they switch after the phd to a new topic It took me long, uh, but I think, uh, I mean, for me, it was a bit special because also in my first year of postdoc, I had some some daunting health issues uh, that also took almost a year to kind of be resolved. When you are physically not in the best place, uh, then your your focus and your concentration is just not there as if you're perfectly healthy. So I think... You know, when you're not in a good state, maybe something that usually would take you two months suddenly takes you six months. And it, it's also a learning process to just accept it the way it is, because you can't just beam yourself into a fresh body that doesn't have any problems, right? So in that, in that regard, I think one just shouldn't stress out. I mean, there is so many, so much time in, in science that we sometimes, let's say, we waste it because we have this, this, this idea stuck in our minds And we can't let it go. And then we follow it up. We run several experiments just to prove ourselves four months later that this idea was just, you know, not really worth it. Yeah. I mean, of course, you always learn something, right? Maybe that signaling pathway was just not it. So you learned that after four months. But still, I mean, you're in the same state as mm -hmm. if you just gave yourself four months of a bit more reading times. I, I think the most important is that you can, you can perform clever thinking. And for that, you shouldn't put a time frame on it. Yeah, I think this is, you are touching on something very important. I, I can relate partially because I also had had some health problems during my PhD and it caused me to, to take quite a long break. Once I started to feel a bit better, I was struggling a lot with, with you know, the thought of like, I need to come back as soon as possible versus I need to adjust to my new limitations because of my disease and during this time I actually um, wrote a review paper with my boss and it was great because I had time to think about my project to kind of revisit what is known and I think in retrospect it helped me more than if I was in the lab pushing to to do the experiments and just 
just working on this. But I think there is still a lot of pressure, both internal and external, to to you know do everything at the same time. And um, it is much harder to 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 really have time to think when you do everything at the same time. So. Yeah, I think it's a, an important piece of advice. Let's jump in time a bit um, to your your childhood or your like school days. Do uh-huh. you remember what sparked your interest in science? Were you always interested in, in biology? Yes, I was always interested in biology. <laughs> and uh, I mean, uh, as a little girl, my dream was to become a vet. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, but then I realized maybe I, I mean, I love the animals and I love to help them, but then I realized I might not like to handle the humans, the owners. <laughs> so, and then uh, biology lessons in, in school were, were introducing DNA mm-hmm. and the concept of, of genes and gene regulation. And that was when I finally felt like, oh my God, this is it. I need to work. Something with DNA, something molecular biology, molecular medicine stuff like, yeah, that's, I think that was the moment when I finally knew this is where I want to become a professional in. So many people say, you know, DNA, PCR, or like finding out about genes is what, what pushed them towards science. It's kind of, it's kind of funny that this is the thing because... It seems like we all start there, but then we go in so many different directions. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a tiny little place uh, somewhere in between uh, Frankfurt and Würzburg. Uh, you know, very green, very foresty surrounding. Uh, yeah, I think it took about one hour to go to Frankfurt or Würzburg. So like every every useful big city was just one hour drive away. <laughs> <laughs> so you did your like, education up to high school over there and then you you moved for your studies to to Vienna and you've been actually here ever since right yes I think after every major career step uh, I always wanted to leave Uh, but then I always also was presented with a really cool (laughs) project that made me stay I need to add to it that also I really love sacher cake and schnitzel a lot. So if you give me an amazing research project <laughs> and <laughs> and schnitzel and sacher cake, it's very hard for me to move away. <laughs> so okay, yeah, this is this is a, definitely something that that makes you want to stay here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you did your undergrad, masters, and PhD at University of Vienna, right? Uh, no, so just my undergrad. Okay. Um, uh, so I studied molecular biology, mm-hmm. um, finished with master's. I also studied zoology additionally. And I have to confess, I'm a horrible zoologist <laughs> because I'm not not the type of person that crawls around uh, on the forest floor and tries to collect little animals. So uh, whenever I had to do this, I was very happy to find some ant. All of the others around me had fancy animals. <laughs> Why did you want to do zoology then? I I found it quite striking that there are so many different animal classes and and families and species around and from very simple to very complex and even the simple one are more complex than we think about. I, I think that is quite cool and I, I felt zoology can teach me something in it. From what I what I read about your work, you you joined the lab of Professor Maria Sibilia. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And as you said, she works on on this um, inflammation versus cancer kind of crosstalk. So why did you decide to do this for your PhD? What really drove you there? I actually never really thought so much about the immune system in all of my undergrads. And so I also took that that as an opportunity and challenge. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because I think the immune system, it's very complex and complicated. Um, it's, it's also a really like a, like a distinct organ in our bodies, uh, mm -hmm. but it's just moving around and it can fight. And uh, so it's kind of difficult to imagine it, uh, I have to admit. So I, I felt, okay, if I, if I go for uh, several years of studying it, then I should finally be able to understand <laughs> and learn something new and hopefully also learn something new, like scientifically to, to provide to the, to the community. And yeah, but I mean, the, the lab is, of her is really fascinating because we were studying the EGF receptor in many different organs. Mm -hmm. And then we would combine it to study the interaction of these organs with the immune system and then the immune system and tumors. And on top of all of that, then sometimes, again, the EGF receptor. And, and that was really kind of cool. So I think I, I got quite a glimpse on how organs and different tissue systems are connected with each other. Mm -hmm. Like we, we were hardly really focused on one main thing and and I think I really like that. So you had this like multi-level question going from like molecular <laughs> to tissue to to organ systems and interactions. I think this is exactly. cool. So were you actually collaborating a lot in the in the lab? Yes. Um, we would always ask each other for help. You know, maybe somebody can do the best staining with whatever tissue. Somebody can run the best qPCR, and we would always try to be efficient learn from each other or just help help each other out. Uh, we would also collaborate with many other groups. Uh, I think she was never afraid to just go and ask a lab that had more experience. Um, so that was also the reason why mm -hmm. I could why I could stay for several months in a different lab in Belgium. Yeah. Uh, which was also really an amazing experience because that, that lab had more than 40 people. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was really cool to see how how to manage such a lab, how to keep the group as a group together, although obviously you need to organize in subgroups. Yes. And it was just an amazing spirit and a really, really great lab. And I'm, I'm still connected with quite a number of people from there. So that's something I really took with me, an amazing time and an amazing network of extremely intelligent scientists. Let me maybe touch on something that I'm really interested in. You are doing a lot of things and I think you are very persistent in putting these challenges in front of yourself all the time. And I wonder how, how big of a role had actually your PhD supervisor as a female mentor in the way that you view your scientific career. Has she been an inspiration? Has she actually helped you um, with making your decisions and your choices how how did it work for you well i think my choices i always just made on my own um mm -hmm. but since she was not only just a female pi but she also became the head of the whole institute while i was one of her students 
I actually never had the feeling that, with, that for women there is at one point like this glass ceiling, right? It was always something extremely natural to me. It never occurred to me that this could be impossible. So in, in that sense, I'm, I'm just very thankful that she was this, this beacon of, of, you know, this is we can all make it to the yeah. top. I mean, it doesn't only come with advantages because when you have a boss in as a woman in that position, that means she has to be present in many, many committees in the university because, because then they need high-ranked women yeah. to take part of it. So that means you hardly ever see your boss. Um, although that boss is a very important and inspiring figure in your professional life, you har hardly get to see her. And uh, then you need to be able to work extremely independently. Mm -hmm. She was also extremely well connected in, in the clinical research. Mm -hmm. So we, we would also test our findings in mice um, on human uh, cancer patient samples. So this was also something really cool. Uh, because sometimes I think the clinicians, you know, they might just yeah. be happy for their tissue and they don't like to share it so much. And she had an amazing way to get her way. Uh, I think that was also a valuable lesson that you, I mean, it's it's just possible. There is no end to it. Um, yeah. So I, I I think I would I would do it again. <laughs> I would definitely do it again. Yeah. You plan to remain remain within the academia, right? You you have these plans to to stay in science and to continue your career. Have you actually considered any? other options beyond this stereotypical scientific career or was it always clear that this is your path? I think it was always clear that this is my thing. Uh, I guess it's 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 what I can do best. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could again challenge myself and do something completely different and try to find out if I can also master something completely different. But uh, I think my heart is still beating for academia. <laughs> for and within academia. So, yeah, I mean, I, I at least want to give it a try, right? I mean, if I never get offered a group leader position, then I, I definitely have to think of something else. But if you don't try, I think you will never find out. So, yeah, academia it is. Get in touch with me for a postdoc. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think now, also looking back at your career so far, is, is really what one would need to, to go in this path. So I guess with time and with your work comes, of course, a lot of experience when it comes to research. But being a PI is not only that, right? So you need much more, you need more skills. And so what would you say for you um, seems like an important thing that one needs to, to be successful in, in being a, a PI? Well, I think you need to be able to care for people. Uh, you should enjoy mentorship uh, because, I mean, if you just hate to talk to people, then that's probably not <laughs> what you should do. <laughs> I mean, either you hire somebody else who then talks to the people and you have amazing ideas, but I think you, what whoever you are, if you want to be a successful leader in academia, I think you need to find a way to talk to the people and to to keep them motivated. So yeah, I think some social skills are extremely helpful. Um, I mean, I guess over time in academia, we also learn to explore ourselves, how, you know, explore our own emotions under different stress conditions. 
And I would hope that until we start uh, our leadership position, we we le also learn to control our emotions. And let's face it, we will always be stressed. Yeah, that's the you kind know, of job. I think that's a skill that helps you while you have the job. It's mm -hmm. not probably a skill that makes you get the job. To get the job, I think if you know if you if you think of little boxes that you want to tick on your CV so that it looks nice and shiny, uh, maybe start to think of activities that are also beneficial for the community, mm -hmm. like organizing conferences, internal lecture series. Maybe you want to understand a bit better how an institute or a, an organization works. Then you could also join, let's say, the grad school um, association or the postdoc association. Um, you know, you have a little bit of responsibility to communicate to the big group that you're representing but then you also are a bit involved in what's what's happening in the institute yeah i think it's very important to also know the people in administration mm -hmm. because you know if, if at one point you get your leadership position then you need to talk a lot to the administration right because they they provide you the framework sure. then they are they are your go-to people so I think it already helps a lot in your PhD and your postdoc if you if you learn uh, who's responsible for what. Uh, because I think while our life works very well every day, it's because there are a lot of amazing people in admin that make that happen. Definitely. It just, you know, doesn't happen out of nothing. I think others, I mean, science outreach and science communication is always great. You know, it's just, I think we all have a big spark of, of fascination and interest in what we do. I mean, it's also catchy what we do, right? I think people are kind of naturally interested in these things. And, and especially kids, they yeah. still, they also have a lot of imagination. So if you can contribute in science outreach activities, it's, it's some way to contribute to the society and the community. What you're saying is, is really important and it's something that I really want to discuss a bit more. We usually have the part of this podcast where I ask my guest about the room for improvement in science. And one thing that is clear to me is that you not only see these problems, but you actually take on the challenges to try to, to work on them. And I think it would be good if, if we could talk a bit about your amazing initiatives. I would like to discuss both the the STEM Fatale and the Wissenschaft. We just talked about the kids, so maybe let's go into the Wissenschaft, mm -hmm. which I think is more directed at the kids, but of course it can serve as an educating channel for, for everyone who is really not a scientist. So the name is German, Wissenschaft. <laughs> I tried to get the idea what it means. It's like knowledge makes it, or how would you translate it into English? Yeah, I think that's a very good translation. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, I think the name only works in German and it's a word play mm -hmm. with, uh, I mean, the German word for science is Wissenschaft. Mm -hmm. And then we felt like, okay, but then also Wissenschaft, yeah. So for now it's in German, as we said. And for now you, you released like a part one, I guess, of, of the whole channel, which is focused on cells, viruses and vaccinations, which is very timely and very hot topic considering the situation that we are in. Yeah, I, I would like to ask you, how did you come up with, with this idea and how, how did you work it into life? Yeah, I was quite frustrated from all of these false news out there that the mRNA from the vaccine is going to integrate into your genome and then you will turn into a giant virus and, you know, all <laughs> kinds of 
for a scientist, quite of entertaining stories that were around. And then I had a lot of friends, obviously, who are not scientists, and they asked me a lot of questions. Is this really safe? How does it, how does it work? Is my genome really not altered? You know, will I become infertile? All of these crazy stories. And so I started to talk to my friends individually. I realized, whoa, I spend, spent a full hour with every single person explaining the same thing. That should be more efficient. And after speaking to several other people, we felt um, that in this regard, maybe the public needs a little bit more education because, I mean, for us as a scientist, we can, we can add the little puzzle pieces together with the mRNA and it's just the transient expression and, and all of these things. But I mean, if, I'm, if I imagine I'm not a scientist, I would find this too complex. And yeah, so then after talking to a number of people in Lab Building East, we uh, actually realized we all have the same thing in mind. Uh, but none of us wanted to start it all by our own because that <laughs> would be too much work. And so we just gathered together and we were like, OK, and now let, let's just do it. Yeah. We, we were a bit afraid that then if if those anti-vaxxers would see the videos, they would say, oh, no, they are paid by the pharma. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, they are paid by the government. So we, we stepped back from taking too many explicit recommendations, or at least we don't give any, I, I think. I mean, we, we just say vaccination is great, <laughs> but we don't say, please go next week and get your shot. We also don't state any company names. Um, yeah, we tried to be kind of neutral with it. You know, I, I watched it and of course my German still lacks quite a bit. But I think the medium that you used is is very nice because you used the, the graphics, right? The mm -hmm. graphics that Laura prepared. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I love the animation. So Laura must have been drawing day and night. Uh, I mean, uh, my, my, my favorite is the, is the rainbow killer cell at the end of episode three. I really love it. And the iconic ribosome, as I like to call it. <laughs> no, that's, it's really fantastic. I mean, the, the whole team, I think we all completely underestimate it the time and effort it takes. Yeah, this is how it works. I think even now with me doing the podcast, I, I realized that, that, you know, I need to find a guest, prepare for the interview and then record it, montage it. And then the final effect is, is just, you know, a short piece of, of what it, what went into it. If you didn't have the the spark in you, the push for, for just doing this, you'd probably drop this. But as you said, you are planning to do some more stuff. So what will you focus on now? What is the next project on of the Wissenschaft? Yeah, so uh, we were selected for a social incubator um, that is pushing social innovation and educational edu innovation, uh, also in a sense to provide kind of more equality Mm -hmm. in the chances to get good education. We are now in the challenge. Uh, they provide us with a lot of workshops to learn all the essentials to create a real startup mm -hmm. and to at least have a product at the end that could be sold, that could be used. I mean, this is extremely useful. And also the questions that they ask you there to develop your idea, that's actually extremely useful for a scientist because it's about what is the problem? Who has the problem? Who wants to solve the problem? Is your solution really helping to solve the problem or is it just a random solution that nobody needs? If you would overlay that on your scientific questions 
and your behavior in the lab. Uh, yeah. I think you could be way more efficient sometimes. So in that regard, I really liked it. Um, but uh, I'm off topic now again. I'm sorry. No, uh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so now basically we are developing a more mature product. And yeah, we really want to try to find a way to get this into schools, to offer it That's to the great. teachers. That's great. And uh, we would also really love, so obviously for the teachers, they would need a German video. We want to prepare uh, additional teaching material, like these working sheets. You know, you have a text and then you have to insert a word. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we would also like to provide the videos additionally in different languages on YouTube. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's say your family moved here, you're a teenager, you're frustrated to be here, you don't really speak German, and now the teacher comes along and tells you something about endoplasmatic reticulum, Golgi apparatus, and the ribosome. You just say, I don't understand a single word. And, and I think it's something, and then people from outside, they will say, oh, you just have to learn German, you're lazy. And, yeah. and I think this is just wrong. It doesn't, I mean, we've proven ourselves now so, so many years that this is just not the way it works. And, and I think you just have way more enthusiasm to learn a new language if you also have a perspective. But for a perspective, you need some kind of content. And, and I think if we could help the kids here, to at least watch the videos maybe in the bus or at home in, let's say, Turkish. Yeah. And they might say, oh my God, a ribosome is actually a really cool thing. It looks very weird, but it does essential stuff. And, you know, maybe they, then they find, they, then they watch the same video as the German kids do, but they, I mean, in different languages. Yes, but yes. The animation is the same. So then maybe they also get something they, they can share with their German friend. To, to get the dialogue going and to also yeah, make them feel yeah. like they, they belong a bit more. Every country in Europe has, has, you know, immigrants coming and because learning in your not your mother language is hard, right? We all know this when we switch at some point to, uh, in our life, uh, especially in our work in science. But imagine being a kid and, you know, going through these challenges. And I think this is very cool that you actually have this already in mind, that, that you keep this somewhere to, to kind of empower this curiosity in them and, like, to make science a bit more relevant in, like, their everyday life. This is really cool. Yeah, I hope it's gonna work because it really sounds like a very big thing. Um, but, you know, if we just reach two more kids with it that then have a perspective. Um, I mean, I would also think it would be awesome if they, you know, if, if we also make a little movie about the particular scientist that talks to them in Turkish. So I think it also gives you a broader perspective on what you can do in yeah. life. I mean, my, my current supervisor, Simon, had, had said a very wise thing several years ago. He, he said, we are very privileged to work in science because we are, we are mostly accepted wherever we go. Yeah. At least within the scientific community. Yes. This environment is very, yeah, exactly. It's very open-minded. Yeah, I think that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is like, I don't know about you growing up, but it's not always clear to to kids that science is a career. You said you wanted to be a vet and you were interested in science. I have friends here who who just say, well, you know, I liked science, but I didn't really think that I can do it as a job. This could be my way to traveling. This could be my way to you know, going into places. And I think it's it's good to to have the science communicators kind of showing 
science as a cool career option and a great path to you know to to develop and to grow and I will keep my fingers crossed for the whole initiative and I will keep following on that to see how things go but you are not only doing this you are also doing the the other project which well is is equally it's equally important and it's equally timely which is the the stem fatal initiative right um mm -hmm. can you maybe tell me where did this idea come from yeah so that started from the from the event series stem fatal in uh, in isd uh where together with hilde and, and melissa i started to organize uh talks and roundtable discussions where we invited uh, kind of very prominent uh, women researchers, well established uh, in their fields, to to share their thoughts on on science, on their career. You know, and then we, we had these roundtable discussions with with those invited speakers, and I, I would always see the glow in the eyes of the participants. I could really feel that they were taking so much from it. And, and I felt, wow, this is so great. Why only have people in IST benefit from, from such an idea? Why not take this to a more higher level context? And then again, after talking to several other people who all said, well, we, you know, we can't just sit and complain. We, we have to take action. We need to do something. Um, let's make this a whole big initiative and, you know, run, try to run it Austria-wide and um, bring women together, like in an institution-independent way. So not to be narrowed down uh, to, to specific research communities, but try to include the whole STEM disciplines in, in Austria, at least. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the basic principle of it. So the goal is to inspire the woman and like to, to foster mentorship and to give an overview of, of different careers of like successful leaders that are, that are females. But also I think you had a bit of a of part of this that is more focused on basically making people aware of the stereotypes that are still there in academia and that are still affecting female scientists' careers. And I think this is really important because we all want to to succeed and we all, as female scientists, want to, to find our path. But not everyone is, is lucky to meet maybe the right mentor or the right person on their way. Even though there's a lot of initiatives that want to support the gender equality and, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on about this there's still not so much change, I would say. What, what are your thoughts on this? And how do you see your initiative fitting into, into this problem? Yeah, I think people would need to invest more time and money to really tackle the problems. I think so far, people seem to be happy with just talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I don't really see too many meaningful attempts to really make big state statements and big changes. Yeah, I think it would be time to accelerate the movement a bit. Um, I mean, something that's very fascinating to me is women are now more likely to get a job than several years ago, but still 
if you look at those at those curves, the percentage of women in, in professorship position is still comparably low. So that's something uh, that seems to correlate with very low application rates. Yeah, like I think approximately fifteen percent of the applications for a professorship only come from women, and that's really something where we need to think. It's not that, I guess, women are just less likely to want to have a leadership position or men are more likely. Mm -hmm. I always think of it as that there must be a 50-50. And if we so exactly. strongly deviate from 50-50, exactly. something must be inherently wrong. And that's why with the STEM Fatal Initiative, we, uh, we have designed a survey with a professor from the humanities and now we are asking a lot of questions about people's thoughts on their own careers, on what could hold them back from the career, what they would think would be beneficial for them. And yeah, so we are, we are collecting data until end of summer. Yeah. We already found an amazing collaborator who is quite famous in statistical analysis in Austria, and she offered to collaborate with us for free. So yeah, we really want to publish those results. We want to write a policy note, send this to institutions, to the political decision makers, really make a statement. Uh, with, we have so and so many hundreds of women taking part of this, and what you guys need to change is this, this, and this. I mean, another big thing, but that that we can't change so easily is the society mindset, because it's, I mean, it's one of those stereotypes that as a woman, many times you believe that you should have a family and take care of it. You should not be the working mom. And, uh, but let's face it, you, you can never make it right for society. There no. will always be the people that say, oh, you work too much. There will be the, the people who say you work too less. There will be the people who, who say, why do you work at all? And uh, I mean, you can just try to, to be strong and really make your own, own decisions on it. But here the institutions have some responsibility because maybe society doesn't provide you with a framework that accepts the working scientist mom, but then at least your own bubble at the institute should allow it. Def or at the this university. Definitely, definitely. So if that, if that also 100% reflects the society, and it's not just that, you know, you have this, you feel guilty that, that you are not conform with society, um, which I think as a scientist is anyways kind of impossible. Um, but um, it's also putting those structures on you that are not flexible enough to handle our kind of job together with spending enough time with your kids so that you feel like you are doing your, having a good educational influence on them yeah uh, and i think in that science should be particularly creative and and flexible because that's what we should be good in uh yeah of course the institutions are important but as we mentioned already several times i think a role model is also a very important thing and and you know being able to especially when you realize you need it to to find a mentor either in a leadership position or even just, you know, at the in a different situation than you that can help you find your way or make you realize that there is a way to figure it out. Like that's already quite powerful. Of course we you know, it's it's hard and all of the female scientists that you meet on the way may actually prove to be you know that the inspiration that you seek which is sometimes a bit discouraging, but 
I think it's it's also important to keep this in the in your head that you can maybe help someone. Like you you know maybe each one of us cannot get so involved in so many initiatives. Like we cannot change that much by ourselves. But maybe you can help a one person to be the mentor or to to give an advice or yeah, you go and you give a talk at your old school and maybe there will be someone who will want to do this. You are very involved in, you know, you have the, the research project going on, you have all of your initiatives and as you said, you now have this, this workshop to, start the, to, to, to get the startup going. Do you still find the time to, to unwind? Well, thanks to the pandemic, not so much. Uh, I, I think several things I'm doing are just possible because of the pandemic. Um, and, and I'm kind of forced to, to remain largely at home. And then I just want to use my time in a useful manner. Uh, what would I usually do? I would like to go <laughs> in the so-called old days. Yeah. yeah, no, I would really love to take off, fly to a to a different place and relax or just you know be, be stimulated with new things hopefully now with the vaccinations we can do at least some of these things in a safe way i don't even need to fly super far away but just to have a bit of a balance that i'm not at home or at work or <laughs> at work at home um yeah this this would be good i i can i can understand that Let's get to the the fun part of of the of the interview, which I'm always always very curious. Let me hear a bit about what do you consider cool science, and not only like within your field, but maybe there's something that that you find very interesting, and you've read about it recently, or you you are very interested in it, in it even though it's not really your domain. What would it be? I I was quite fascinated by the recent publications from the Klevers lab on different kinds of organoids. Uh, for example, now they had tear gland organoids that would also really cry and, and produce tears. And I, I found that quite amazing, I have to say. And it's going to be beneficial for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in that regard, I think the Klevers lab did, did really amazing pioneering work on, on bringing the, I mean, many different organoids to life i think there should be organoids now for so dozens of tissues and and cell types that's really amazing and also to bring it to a level that you can use it for mm-hmm. patients mm-hmm. relevant research i mean it's also amazing how much the netherlands invested in in that regard so yeah that's something that really fascinates me however i never really found my way into the organoid working <laughs> world <laughs> But well, I love to read those papers, uh, yeah. Another thing that maybe you already thought about it. Uh, we we mentioned money and funding on several occasions. Now, if you had unlimited funding for your work, what is it? what is the experiment that you would like to do? What is some technique that you would like to try that you are really mostly limited either by money or by not being in a place that can do this thing? What What is the dream experiment of yours? 
I mean, it would be something patient-related for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, because since I had this background from the medical university, we were much closer on on thinking at least our our research is is relevant for somebody more directly. Now, being in neuroscience, it would be amazing perform experiments that could treat. Uh, I mean, that could lead to treatments for for brain cancer patients especially those childhood cancers that are, I don't know, after diagnosis, maybe have one year life expectancy. So it's really very, very stressful and sad diagnosis. And yeah, I would love to to find a cure for that. Uh, how exactly, I still need to work on. <laughs> so exactly, this is, I think, something we didn't discuss, that your work, even though you are focusing on, on development of the brain, this is actually very relevant, not only to to like fetal development, but also to to certain first of all developmental disorders that that can also you know affect the the child after it's being born and and there's also translation of the development of the brain development into cancer, especially the childhood cancer. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, is this something that you would like to do in the future, that you would like to have this translational aspect to your research in your in your future endeavors? Yes, that's actually in my research statement for my group leader applications, exactly. Wow. That's, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds amazing, though. I, I can imagine it. it's not that that easy to, to, I guess, to do this, but you have experience already collaborating with the clinicians, so... I think all of this will come handy, right? When you when you actually get to do this. I, I hope so. Okay, so one last question. I think it shows a bit about um, who you're looking up to. So if you could have dinner with a person that is either living currently or have lived in the past um, and you could chat and just ask some advice or talk about their work and life... Who would you choose? (laughs) (laughs) I found Stephen Hawking quite remarkable. Of the living ones, it's very hard because I think of the scientists nowadays, it's more easy to really reach out to them. At least if you're a scientist yourself, who is impressing me? I think more the... Those young women in in the Middle East that fight for the right for education and and equality, yeah. I think that it would rather go that direction and not so much to a scientist. So what would you discuss? Yeah, I would really love to listen to their ideas, um, also how they experience their educational system. I mean, you know, to whom would you need to talk in order to implement a change? Or how would you how would you make a politician in such a system realize that it's very important to provide the same educational opportunities to girls than than to boys? And you know, maybe one can also take some inspiration from the European past and and try to have a look how it evolved here. Uh, because I think we, we probably don't need to reinvent the wheel all over again. Uh, you, you know, sometimes we could maybe just learn from history and, uh, you know, at least provide our knowledge that we take from so- those experiences. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's not even a problem of in infrastructure we are calling, I mean, we are talking about. Right, because I have some friends who are now building schools in Togo, but just because they experience that the conditions there are horrible. Yeah. Um, but now to exclude a certain population from the education, this is even a different uh, field. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of things that we can get involved, you know, as scientists. And I think um, a lot of people see the, the reason behind the scientific communication and to, you know, to educate the kids. But still, I would say it's a minority of people that want to actually go into policy changes on politics. You know, like on the on the institute level, there's a lot of people that get involved. That there's a lot of discussion. There's there's you know a lot of like internal programs that are happening, and there's a lot of support. But a lot of scientists don't want to go into the politics. And I don't know if this is your experience as well, but how do you find the strength to, to go on? How, where, where does it come from that you, you feel like you, you can do this? Is this coming from the fact that there's, there are other people around you that want to also get involved? Or is this your internal push that really... I guess it's it's a combination. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky that I'm surrounded by so many people who, who like to support me or my initiatives or even get involved. Um, so in that regard, I, I always have this own bubble a bit mm -hmm. uh, where we all try to go the same direction. I, I don't know how that would be if everybody would just be against me. I think I have kind of a pathological altruism problem that I always want to <laughs> create a, a better place uh, for others. Um, but, you know, probably also because I, I've just been very lucky my whole life. Uh, I had a great education. Um, I went to good universities. I'm, I'm now in IST. I, I mean, I, I went to Brussels to one of the best labs in the world and I'm still friends with them. I mean, I don't have any big major issues in my life going on. So I think in such a privileged situation, one, one should really give back and, and try to create a world when every, where everybody can experience as, as best conditions as possible. Um, I mean, of course, I had my health issues and, and that was a very very much a downtime in my life but then also from that you learn something no you learn that you hang in there you don't just give up um if i imagine to be a kid and i find myself in a hopeless situation with with zero education or not speaking some language or whatever it may be i think it's it's our responsibility as a society to to create a place Where, where kids can have perspectives and where they can thrive and be as successful as they want. But I think we should not take the decision from them. And that's something that happens so many times on this planet, that this decision is not on, on the individuals. It's made by the society system. That's probably something that's just driving me. <laughs> Thank you, Nicole. I mean, this, this has been most inspiring. And I'm sure a lot of people will, will find it you know, helpful to to hear from, from a strong female researcher who is also so, yeah, so driven and 
who, as you said, has the altruistic drive, which is, which is great. And I, I'm really grateful that you agreed for this conversation. I hope you, you enjoy the final, final interview. <laughs> Thanks so much for this opportunity. <laughs> it was great. <laughs>